Hello and welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today left her job, her relationship and London and headed to Aberdeen to meet offshore oil rig workers. She wanted to see what men were like with no women around. Well, here she tells us how she reached that point in her life, what came afterwards and the publication of her book, Sea State. Tabitha Leslie, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. And I want to start at the beginning with your childhood in the Wirral. Is that where you were born? Yes, and it's where I live now as well. I sort of went back to the source. So tell me about that childhood. Was it literary in any way? Well, my mum was a teacher, so she always read to me a lot and encouraged my writing. She's still very encouraging of it. I wouldn't say it was a particularly literary childhood. I mean, we have books on the shelf. My uncle writes a lot, but he's never... He's never worked, but he writes a lot. He creates like a fanzine that he's written for like years and years. And like, he's good. Like when I read his writing, I'm like, that's what my writing would be like if I'd never had an editor. So certain things about it, like his ear for meter, I can really see my own writing in that. So I I guess there's a kind of gene for it. That's interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, it is nurture and nature, really. You had a terrible car accident as a teenager. Oh, yeah. And that, that, and it's it's relevant because it does sort of inform your book in in some ways. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I put that in because I was like a car crash and a car crash and then I got another car crash at the end. It was like a metaphorical car crash sandwiched by two real car crashes. But um, yeah, it was, I was 15 years old. It put me off driving for years. I didn't learn to drive until I was 31, which I partially put down to that. It's really something that's kind of, it's sort of almost entered our family law now. Like anytime I drive my niece, who's like eight, past that spot, because it's 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 right by my house. Anytime I, I drive my niece past the spot, she'll be like, is that where you crashed? Is that where you, like, she's really fascinated by the story now? Because I think children have quite a gothic streak and they quite like hearing about stories of peril and things. So she's become quite obsessed with the story now and always asks me to point out the spot where we came off the road and we rolled and things and yeah I still think about it quite a lot which I I don't know why I think about it so much but I read recently that memories I think memories formed in adolescence are really carved into the brain so they often feel more recent and more relevant than stuff you did a couple of years ago Mm. and certainly that's been the case for me but I also think as a writer you have to really stay in touch with the person you were at like 15, 16. I've heard a lot of other writers say that, that emotionally they're often quite immature, but offsetting that is the ability to create, I think. I think maybe, I guess it's like, it's those genes that sometimes there's a benison, but also a fault with them. And I often think the capacity to create, it will come with certain emotional issues like you know most of the writers I know are very thin-skinned and that's sort of how impressions get in and and why you can sort of render the world in a way that feels real to other people but it also means that you spend quite a lot of your time feeling really like offended or overthinking like social interactions and another I've just actually seen another writer a friend of mine like she she sort of lives around the corner so we had a cup of coffee and she she always says the one thing all artists share is an unhappy relationship with at least one parent which I don't know if that's completely true, but certainly like most of the writers I know, 
it holds good. Mm, that whole thing of trauma begets creativity. Yeah. I want to just talk about the Wirral for a moment because it's in the northwest of England, but many of our le- listeners will not be familiar with it at all. Could you just describe what sort of place it is? Well, it's peninsula and it's between two estuaries and it's bisected by motorway. And so on the east side of the motorway, which is the side closer to Liverpool, it's poorer, it's more urban. And then on the west side of the motorway, which is on the Welsh side, it's much more rural. There's a lot of farms and things. And I mean, the thing about the Wirral, certainly like my bit of the Wirral, is the water table is very high. It's a very boggy area. It floods a lot. Um, There's a lot of fields that kind of, they're fields, but they're also mears. They sort of, you know, a lot of that kind of indeterminate liminal land where water and earth kind of merge into one. It's quite a weird place. It's, I think, people there... I mean, the the demographic has really changed since COVID. Like, a lot of people... There's a lot of incomers now, whereas there never used to be. But definitely, I think the people used to have quite a weird sort of, I guess, regional character. You know, it's kind of stitched together from, like, Liverpool and Wales. And it was kind of a weird intermingling of both. Mm -hmm. You left there, though. What took you to both London and to Johannesburg? Well, I've actually lived in London twice on both sides of my stint in Johannesburg. I came down here for a job originally, just around the corner. I used to work at an advertising agency on Baker Street. I'm not sure if it's still there. It might have moved now, just after I graduated. And then I moved to Johannesburg. What did you study? I studied English and I didn't write for years, which I think is very common because, you know, you do so much in the way of criticising other people's writing when you're studying it, you know, Mm. pulling it apart and critiquing it that it really I think it just makes you self-conscious it's like if if somebody started critiquing the way you walked you'd fall over your own feet (laughs) and you know people who want to write often do English thinking it will help but I actually think it's the least helpful of all the subjects Mm. and let me tell you interviewing authors is one way to guarantee you never write (laughs) Uh, yeah I can imagine actually I think if I'd known more authors I possibly wouldn't have bothered with the book I often think that. Well, very glad that tragedy was averted because it's an excellent book. So you're working in advertising. Why do you go off to South Africa? Trailing after a man, as usual. Like, it's a bit of a theme. Like, I had a boyfriend who is actually the boyfriend I leave at the beginning of the book after the burglary, and he got a job out there, so I went with him. I didn't know him very well. Like, we'd only been together a couple of months, and I thought it would be a romantic thing to do. I was in my 20s. And was it? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, tell us now about the breakup because that's really where our story starts. So you've had a horrible time with him in Joburg. You come back. You're still with him. It was just a bad relationship. Like, I don't want to blame it all on him because it wasn't all his fault. It was just two people who shouldn't be, really shouldn't be together and didn't like each other very much, but for some reason wouldn't split some sense of cussedness. I mean, a lot of it was like an economic thing. It was just living in London as a two is just about affordable but as a one Mm. it's not and I I just was doing this calculation in my head where I was like I have to leave him but if I leave him that means leaving my job because back then I mean this is almost 10 years ago now you couldn't really be a magazine journalist outside of London it's it's easy to be a journalist in other parts of the country now but it wasn't then I thought well I have to leave my job my career all my friends who I've been friends with for the 10 years I've been down there and it, it literally meant just sort of taking a hammer to my life basically Mm. which I did do in the end but what was the inciting incident really the burglary like I guess the way he was after it I just thought oh he's all my stuff went 
And then he got tax rebate and he was really happy and he was just going to spend it all on himself. And I just thought, wow, he's never going to... His, I always, for, for many years, I thought it was a problem of communication and that if I just explain myself in the right way, if I just use the right examples and pick the right language and, you know, maybe invoke the correct opinions from outside our relationship, you know, that he'd get it. And then one day I just was like, he does get it. He doesn't understand. He just doesn't give a shit. Mm. But it took me so long to get my head around that, which I'm quite ashamed to admit. I mean, crucially, you lost your laptop and in that laptop was a book that you'd been working on and you completely lost it. It was gone. gone. And that prompted your move to Aberdeen. And this was huge because it really has changed the trajectory of your life in terms of the book coming out and, and so on. So tell us about deciding to go off to Scotland. I think now when I look back at it, I'm like, I think subconsciously I felt like if I... If I don't leave London, I will end up going back to him because we were one of those couples who just kept breaking up and then getting back together again. I was like, I don't want to, don't want to be with him anymore, but I have to put the length of a country between us to ensure that it sticks. So that was, I mean, notionally I was going up because I wanted to do the book and that's the best place to do it. But I think as well, like it was about making sure that this time we were going to stay broken up. So tell us about the book. You'd been thinking about this, about about offshore oil workers, about how men exist without women. Tell us a little bit more about your, your thought process around this. Well, I'd just been very obsessed with it for a long time. When I was 25, I met these men who became friends of mine. I'm still friends with them, who were offshore workers. They were the first ones I'd ever met. I met them in, in a bar on the Wirral. Anytime you get post-industrial areas, you will get offshore workers. I mean, they tend to congregate in the northeast, but really anywhere that had a big industrial complex at some point that is now gone, they'll have offshore workers because you can take those skills that you learn, you know, working with chemicals, heavy industry, and you can you can take them offshore. So these two men I met were local, but I'd never met an offshore worker before and, and they were so different from everybody else that I knew. You know, they were really like a kind of modern version of sailors on shore leave and I found them so fascinating. And I said to them, one day you're going to be in my book. But I had to sort of get good at writing first and it took 10 years. And there's actually a picture on my Instagram, which was taken, I think, not this summer, just gone last summer, of one of them, Robbie, holding the book. It was the first time, I mean, because he lives in Thailand now and he never comes back. So it was the first time he ever actually got to see the book that he inspired. And it was, yeah, it was a really nice feeling to actually give it to him and be like, I did it. I know I've been saying for 16 years, I'm going to do it. Here it is. Extraordinary. So what were the fundamental questions you went into? Because the book is is a very interesting mashup of, of reportage, of interview, but then, of course, huge amount of kind of biography and memoir comes into it too. But originally, this was going to be a completely factual exploration. What were the questions you were asking? Initially, um... I don't know. They were probably all really stupid questions. I can't even, <laughs> I can't remember now, but it would be, I guess because I'm a woman, I was mostly interested in interpersonal questions about their home lives and things. I did notice that, that I was asking them more stuff about what happened back on land than about what it was actually like out there. I think maybe if I'd been a man, I might have gone in with more technical questions. I mean, that's a very sexist generalisation, but I do think women tend to focus more on the realm of the interpersonal. Mm. I mean, the technical side of it kind of bored me, you know, and people would have to go on and on at me to make me understand, like, in a very basic way, how an oil rig, oil platform, rather, because they're two different things, how it worked. Like, I had to have that repeated to me so many times Mm. just to, to get it 
fixed in my mind because my brain just doesn't work that way at all. It would switch off with things like diagrams and things. But I was very fascinated with the way their jobs informed the rest of their lives. And I did feel a kind of kinship with them because certainly the year I did it, which was 2015, oil was losing a lot of value. It's always been a boom-bust industry that goes through these cycles and the men have to prepare for that, that they might be laid off at any minute and then picked up again like maybe like a year later and hired back at a, a much higher rate. That's always happened. And it was going through a period of contraction at that point. And, you know, obviously there was the whole... It, it wasn't such a big question then, but, you know, the whole question of fossil fuels becoming a thing of the past. And I, I really felt that kinship with them because I was like, I'm from an industry that's dying. I'm from an industry where you get treated badly and everything's shrinking, everything's contracting. And there's, so there's that downward pressure of on wages and on conditions. And print journalism was becoming a sort of relic from a bygone era. So, And I think as well, because they were all pretty lonely up there and I was really lonely too. So we sort of connected on that level. Like I saw a lot of myself in them. But then, of course, I went back to the world to write the book and I started identifying more with women again you know when I was surrounded by men I almost became like a mimic man and I, I really identified with them as opposed to like their wives or their partners but then when I got back to the world and was surrounded by family surrounded by women again I recalibrated and started thinking about it from mm. the women's points of view. So the idea was that you would go and you would interview these offshore workers and you ended up interviewing 103 of them but it was the first one that actually set this book on a completely different pathway. Yeah, it's it's really quite embarrassing. And I always make the point that he was number one because I think if he was 40 or 65 or 92, like we wouldn't have had an affair. It was only because he was one that we did. Like I'd literally just walked out of this relationship that was going very badly wrong for years. And I think when you've been in a situation like that, and again, I don't want to blame my ex-boyfriend for everything like I was there was fault on both sides but it was just a very miserable relationship for both of us I think and you know when you've been in a situation like that and then you get out of it and then a man is nice to you that has a very profound effect it's like somebody not hitting you over the head with a hammer after you know I mean I, I don't it's a bad analogy I don't want to make my ex-boyfriend sound like an ogre he isn't but we were just very wrong for each mm. other you know but you know I, he was just the first man who was nice to me I was like four days out of the relationship and, you know, I'd made myself homeless as well, homeless, jobless. I was completely just unanchored. And he was something like, I can I guess, a ballast. He was like, it sounds weird because he wasn't there, but he was the one constant of my days because he texted me so frequently. I could always rely on that, that he would be in touch. Even when everything else was in flux, you know, I didn't have a house. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any source of income. I didn't have any friends up there. I didn't have any routine. But I could rely on Caden to be in touch at multiple points throughout mm. the day. And, yeah, it was it was nice. But he was married with yes. kids and eventually he decides he's going to leave his wife. He texts her from the platform, says, I'm not coming back, and comes to live with you. And, I mean, you just describe all of this so beautifully. You describe the way these men live on and offshore. I mean, it's fascinating. And his trying to see into his thought processes of what he was doing there. And you have this... I mean, it sounds like really quite a functional relationship until his wife starts getting in touch. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think being on an oil rig is very similar to being in the forces in certain ways. So, you know, obviously 
Jody calls were created, well, they were created to help keep time, but they were also, the lyrics of Jody calls are often about your wife sleeping with somebody else, and those lyrics are designed to sever the soldier's connections from home so that their first loyalty is to their outfit, battalion, whatever. And I think a similar thing happens offshore. You know, there's all these, it's the content of their talk, their kind of gossip, I guess, is the same as Jody calls. You know, there's this stock figure called Leroy that they all talk about. Oh, your wife is shagging Leroy. She's not bullshit. You know, she doesn't want to hear from you. And again, I think it's used to kind of sever that connection from home. The men who work offshore do not have the same connection to their homes as men who work in an office and a home for their tea every night. How could they? You know, they're away half the time. And psychologically, those bonds will reform when they come back and then they will just get torn again. So it seems very... Like, even when I think about it now, I'm like, oh, that's so weird. You know, he left his family for someone he met six times. And obviously that was a red flag about his psychological state. It's not a normal thing to do. But it kind of is in that... Well, I mean, it's still not a normal thing to do, but it's more normal if you work in a profession where you're constantly getting sent away and those bonds are getting frayed all the time and the chatter around you, among other men, is very anti-women. It's very anti-family. It's women are cheats. Women will take all your money. Women will spirit your kids away over borders. Marriage is a scam. There's a lot of very old, bitter men offshore. Bitter's not a very good word. I think you should always look at that word twice. But there's a lot of there's a lot of men offshore who are have been through at least one divorce. And it's that industry. It will put your marriage mm. through its paces. So they've got all these war stories and they feed the war stories into the ears of the younger men. And it really inflects their attitude towards women. And he'd come back with all these horror stories about this woman and that woman. And I think a combination of factors just made made it pretty easy for him to leave. I mean, he was always leaving anyway. You leave every three weeks. Yeah, They're very well paid, generally, offshore workers. And you write a lot about, really about money and power and how, how money gives you power and how these people formerly, as you say, from, from industries that were blighted from places that weren't the greatest locations to grow up and suddenly have this, have this power, have this ability to spend. And it changes their relationship with the world. It definitely changes their relationship with their wives. I mean, they're not as well paid now as they were in the 80s and some of the 90s. I mean, that was, I think, the real, maybe the 70s and 80s was the real high point when it came to offshore workers' pay. It's now more like a normal level. Most people do it for the time off because if they were doing that kind of work on land, they would be sent away not for three weeks, but for like six weeks, two months, maybe even three months. So actually, it's more of a kind of lifestyle thing. But certainly, the areas where a lot of them are from, the jobs that pay a lot of money tend to be in the manual sector. And there's just not that much opportunity for women in that sector, because women are weaker than men. They just can't do the same stuff as a man can with their body. So the opportunities for women to make real money in those places are limited and it really distorts the balance of a relationship. If one person is earning all the money and the other person stays at home because the contribution that they'd make financially would be so small as to be meaningless. You know, and they're having to do everything at home as well, you know, they're having to take the kids to school, keep the house running. They can't really do that 
and work. Well, I suppose they could, but it would be very difficult. So it really it is all about money. I remember the first time I ever met my now agent, Tracy Bowen, one of the first things she ever said to me is, this is all about money, this book, which I hadn't even realised at the time. Sometimes it takes someone else to say it. But, you know, if you control the money in a marriage, you control the marriage. Mm. And that's when I look back, Caden always used to be like, oh, I'm so scared of my wife. Oh, oh she's so frightening. I'm so terrified of her. She's so controlling. Now when I look back, I'm like, of course he wasn't frightened of her. He he held the purse strings and he used to do whatever he wanted. His behaviour was not the behaviour of a person who was scared of his partner, but it really suited me to have that narrative. Mm. Oh, she's this, you know, kind of gorgon and... Although it would seem to me reading the book that one of the reasons he decided to go back to her was she was making huge financial demands on him. If, if, um, if... I, I think it's the reason, but that's very that's a very face saving yeah. way for me to put it. I mean, he might have just got bored. <laughs> Do you know if he's read the book? I know she's read it because she wrote to my... No, actually, I don't know if she's read it. That's not true. She got in touch with my editor, my then editor, Nick, about a year before the book came out because it was acquired 18 months before they brought it out. And they... You know, when, they, when they've when they had an auction and they, they acquire a book, they'll usually put a press release out and they put this press release out. And I read it and it sort of, it had all these details in it. And it was hard for my mind to be like, oh God, take that bit about the married man out because if she's still following me or if she's still Googling me all the time, she's going to see it and hit the roof. And then I thought, no, this is ridiculous. It happened years ago. Of course she isn't. Turns out she was. <laughs> and she found out and she got in touch with Nick and she wrote this letter, which was all very oblique threats, which didn't come to anything. I happen to think she wrote the letter to Nick because she knew he'd pass it on to me and then I'd know that Caden had gone back to her and cry. Did you? No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was, I mean, how many years later was it? I mean, it was, it was five years later and, yeah, I mean, I definitely processed it. And also, like, when I look back at that relationship now, I'm like, I'm really happy that happened. It, like, it was obviously not nice at the time, but I got a book out of him. Yeah. Like I got a whole new career out of this very short liaison. So I feel like the net the net effect of meeting him for me was positive. Mm. I'm not sure he would say the same about me. For the reader, of course, we are put through the absolute ringer. I mean, your breakup, you're very, very unhappy. And I, and I mean, I'm not going to spoil it because people must read it because this is about, it's got so many layers to this book. It's also about Aberdeen, the city, life in a port city uh, and what that's like. And I think it's really interesting looking at what you're writing at the moment. You were telling me that, that there is a strong water theme in, in what you're writing now. When you look at where you come from, you were talking about that liminal experience of the water in the world. Also, Aberdeen, this huge port city, and just the importance of how water is kind of swirling around you. Tell me how that's influenced your work, what you have done, and also what you're about to do. Oh, well, my friend Kieran Goddard, who's also a writer, he said to me a few years ago, he was like, every new book is about water. It's because we're scared of it running out. It's also because we're 75% water, so it's like implicit egotism basically writing about ourselves when we write about water and I actually have noticed that it's a really watery theme to a lot of new books it's true it does seem to be something that is very much on people's minds I mean for me I mean I grew up near water near a big between two big bodies of water and we got the Irish sea at the end of the peninsula so three really I think if you've grown up near the sea then you always feel odd landlocked. I lived in Birmingham when I was at university and that used to make me feel very weird that it was so far from the coast. Yeah, I don't know why. It just makes you feel really boxed in if you're not near the sea. Aberdeen is very different from the Wirral. Obviously, you know, it's in every way. The Wirral is kind of shifting and 
amorphous. I mean, literally, fields will just get swallowed up by water after a flood, so it, the shape of it will change. Whereas Aberdeen, you know, they call it the Granite City, it's very solid and unchanging, and the water there is, is more contained. They're almost kind of like diametrically opposed mm. I would say and the water's different as well like our water is brackish whereas theirs is salt but yeah I mean it's something I'm very obsessed with I was actually reading Tidal Waters I was reading it like on the train and I was like this book has actually got more in common with my second book than my first to be honest with you I mean the second book I call it a book I'm working on it at the moment and Tidal Waters of course is this book by a Colombian journalist yes. Velia Vidal yes she goes back to her home state which is very swampy isn't it and I was reading it and thinking this is actually more like my second one my second one is set on a it's never called the Wirral but it is definitely inspired by the Wirral and it's this kind of marsh town and it's about a kind of liminal spaces and shifting boundaries and I think when you're writing your first book and you're just finding your feet it's probably easier to do a setting like Aberdeen which is so solid you know it's much easier to pin something like a city to the page than some sort of boggy, weird hinterland mm. like the Wirral. But I was very inspired by Lorna Sage's book, Bad Blood. It's the whole reason I went with Fourth Estate and with Nick Pearson, because he was the editor that shepherded that book into the world. And I just adore Bad Blood so much. And she comes from Shropshire, which is near the Wirral, but also geographically it's, it's very similar. And I saw how she managed to, to actually get that sort of shifting, wet, indeterminate setting on the page and um, yeah, it inspired me to give it a go and try and do the same. Well, it's an excellent book. It's called Sea State and I would highly recommend that our listeners read it so much to it. I mean, yeah, I just can't possibly describe all the various levels in it. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Tabitha Lassley, thank you. Thank you. Tabitha Lassley's book Sea State is published by Fourth Estate and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers and thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard, Monica Lillis and Lily Austin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.